The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here in the room. Thanks for tuning in online, those of you who are joining us there. Uh, It's great to have you all with us this morning, and I want to make a point once again of welcoming our visitors. We're really, really blessed and grateful to have you with us this morning at the Springs. We're a church being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And we do that primarily by gathering in the name of the Father, by growing into the image of the Son, and by going in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm grateful that you're with us this morning. I'm glad you've gathered. I hope you'll join us for more growing and going in the days and weeks and years to come. And I also hope you'll join us, gather with us tonight at the Back to School Carnival. Tonight at 5 p.m. right out here in the parking lot and the North Building, we're going to be having a great time. This is our second annual and we'll have the snow cones, we'll have games and prizes, cakewalk, there's a dunk tank. I've seen the preliminary list of those getting dunked. It's pretty dunkable, (laughs) including yours truly. So I hope you'll come out tonight. It's going to be really a great time. Invite your friends. Come one, come all to our back-to-school carnival this evening. And this morning marks week three of our current sermon series, The Word of the Lord. So let's go ahead and go to Scripture together in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 9 through 14. Thank you, Caitlin, for already taking us there this morning. That was beautiful. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we give you thanks for this word. This word that has called us. Your word that redeems us. Your word that is beautiful and true and good. And God, we ask that this word would call us into deeper and deeper communion with you and deeper community with one another. We ask that you would give us the imagination and the strength 
to put your word into action in our lives. I ask you for the gift of preaching, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. You can find some interesting things on Ancestry.com. I know some of you like genealogy work. You like to scour the internet for newspaper clippings and photos and marriage certificates. But imagine you're on a genealogy website and you find not just a newspaper clipping, but you find a 60-room English manor. That's what happened to Hopwood Dupree. Growing up in Michigan in the 70s, his grandfather had always talked about this tract of land that his ancestors had had across the Atlantic Ocean, just right outside of Manchester in England. And so fast forward several decades, Hopwood is online, he's on Ancestry.com, and he's going around looking at different things, and he comes across an article that talks about this Lord Hopwood of Hopwood Hall. Sure enough, it's this photograph of this sprawling 50,000 foot, square foot stone and brick manor in England. So he buys a ticket and he flies across the ocean. He decides to go check this thing out. And what he sees is an estate that has seen better centuries. There's trees growing through the chimneys. There's dry rot. There's plaster peeling from the walls and leaky roofs. But there's also beauty there. There's also an incredible history to this place. There are carvings and things that date back to the 15th century, a medieval period. And so he decides to give up his autonomous life in Los Angeles to sell his house there and to move across the ocean to go and begin the project of restoration. He decides to to pour into this house, this 50,000 square foot manor, all the minute details that the restoration process entails. All right, and it's not easy. It's hard work. It's, it's actually a grade two historic site in England, so he can't just go to Home Depot and grab some contemporary drywall. He's got to mix goat hair with lime mortar and use the medieval technique. He's got to actually do this right. It's slow, painstaking minutely detailed work, but it's worth it. It's a labor of love for the hope of restoring this beautiful house. Some people look on the church today, even Christians, and they see a crumbling house in disrepair. All right, some look on the church and all they can see is this dilapidated structure, the maybe once great institution that is now kind of falling over to the elements and they think it should just be raised to the ground. But Isaiah gives us a more hopeful imagination this morning. Isaiah gives us a different response. Isaiah looks at God's people, looks at the community that God has called together, and he sees that God does not call for the church to be raised, but restored. God does not call for the church to be raised, but restored. And this restoration might be an ongoing, painstaking, minutely detailed process but it's worth it, and we have hope that it will come to fruition because it is a community founded 
in the labor of love that Jesus has brought. So let's open up Isaiah and see what kind of imagination we can find for the community of God's people in chapter 58. He says, if you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. Now this is where I think our English Bibles could use the word y'all. I'm... I haven't always been a y'all person. I remember I grew up a Yankee, and uh, we, uh, we did not use y'all. We derided all of you for using y'all, all y'all. But I think it would help us because we read so many passages in the Bible that have the word you, and we just read it addressed in the singular. But this is one of those passages where we're really gonna miss the point if we read it that way, right? This is addressed to the community of God's people. We could translate verse nine, if y'all remove the yoke from among you, right? The pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil. So what is this yoke that needs to be removed? Well. Previously in this chapter, before our text, in verse three, it says, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Clearly, everything is not okay with God's people. Right? There's, there's injustice, there's oppression going on. There, there's not righteousness. They're neglecting the needs of the oppressed. There's trouble in God's community. And it would be easy for us to take this passage and look today at the church and adopt a kind of despairing tone, right? Adopt this idea that it's just a dilapidated house that needs to be given over to the elements, right? That needs to be raised, but the tenor of the passage is not despair. It's hope, right? Isaiah says, look, if you do this, if you listen to God, if you actually obey him, if you give bread to the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then, then your light shall rise in the darkness. If, then, right? There is reason for hope, and, and we might hear this passage in its critical nature and, and think, yeah, that's, that's a church, oppressive, self-interested, neglectful. But Isaiah calls us not just to an honest vision of our flaws, right? Not just to see the dry rot and the peeling plaster on the walls, but to do something about it, right? To to get our hands dirty, to get invested in the kingdom of God restoring his people. And now I'm, I'm preaching to everybody this morning, but I'm, I'm especially preaching to those of you on, on the edges, right? Those of you kind of wanting to take a hike from the church. Those of you concerned rightly with the church and our shortcomings, but wanting to, to leave. And I want to say don't. Right? I want to say there is hope, right? That people can be hopeless. We're, we're made up of people, of course. People can be hopeless, but God's people have hope, right? God's people have hope. We may take a while to get there, 
but God is guiding us, and we can trust in that securely, right? We might take four steps back, and it might take us five centuries to get back to on track, but we can trust that God is teaching us and guiding us, and he is doing his work of restoration. We trust, because as, as John Webster says, the church is not finished. It learns itself over time. It does not possess itself wholly because its source of life is the infinity of God. Right? We, we trust that God is, is teaching us. We learn ourselves in the spirit over time and our source is God's infinity. Our source is God's perfect end that he is drawing us towards by the power of Jesus Christ. So we, we trust in him. We don't abandon the church. Right? There's a, a theologian who, who says of people kind of headed for the exit sign, he says, we leave the freshness and freedom of Christianity in the hands of those who corrupt them, and even this is a pretext for us to move farther away from Christianity. All right, he says, don't, don't go to the exit door, look back, watch us fail, and say, see, I was right. No, jump in. Get your hands dirty. Get to work on restoring this beautiful English manor, a house worth restoring. Get to work giving bread to the hungry, removing the yoke of injustice. When we all seriously desire and pursue a community of justice and generosity, patience and love, by the power of God, our light will rise in the darkness. There's hope, church. And you'll notice this if-then passage. It says, if you do this, then this will happen. The then continues in verse 11. It says, then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. I love this imagery from verse 11 here. It kind of reminds you of Psalm 23, right? God guiding us. He'll lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And then there's this, this water, God leading us to still waters in that psalm. But I really love verse 12, your ancient ruins being rebuilt, foundations for many generations, repair of the breach, you'll be called restorer of streets to live in. So Isaiah says, if, if you actually do this, if you remove that yoke of injustice, if you actually give bread to the hungry, if you actually satisfy the needs of the afflicted, basically, if you do everything Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, God's got beautiful restoration in store for you. If you actually devote yourselves to this restoration, your light will rise in the darkness. But it may not happen all at once. It may not be some incredible boom of renewal, right? It might take small, slow acts of faithfulness over time. 
It might take thinking outside the box in order to be repairer of the breach, restorer of streets to live in. In the late 1980s and early 90s, the crime rate in New York City was sky high. And over the next couple decades, that rate came down in most of New York, except in Brownsville. And Brownsville is a community in the eastern part of Brooklyn, and it's about 100,000 people. And it's one of the most destitute places in New York City. There are 18 public housing projects in Brownsville. And so there was this police officer named Joanne Jaffe who had an idea to, to try and bring the crime rate down there. And particularly, she looked at these juvenile offenders who, who had robbed. And so they decided, once she was appointed the head of the housing bureau for the NYPD, she started this program called JRIP, Juvenile Robbery Intervention Program, JRIP. And so she, she compiled a list of all the juveniles that had committed robberies over the last 12 months, and it was about 106 of them that she estimated had been responsible for about 5,000-some infractions in their community. And they called him up, and they said, you're on the list. You're in the JRIP program, and that means that we are here for you. We want to help your families. We want to give you everything you need. We want to get you back in high school. We want to get you graduating. But we're also going to be on you. And we're going to make sure that you, you do time if you do something. We're going to be on you, and we want to help you. So they get the program going, and they try some things, but they're kind of hitting a wall. This community doesn't want to receive them into their homes. They try to make contact with the families, but every time they knock on the door, it's getting slammed in their face. The breakthrough came several months down the road. One of the team members of JRIP He's, he called up Joanne and he said, hey, we, we all chipped in and we bought a turkey dinner for, uh, for Thanksgiving for this, this family. It was the family of a kid they just called Johnny Jeffries. And Johnny Jeffries was a kid who'd done some pretty bad stuff. But they all chipped in and they thought, look, there's seven other brothers and sisters in here. We gotta do something for this family. So she calls up the police commissioner and she says, hey, I want to buy 125 turkeys. Do you have the money? He says, yeah, I can find it. So they go around, they get these refrigerated trucks and they go from door to door in Brownsville and she gets to do five of them herself and she goes in and every time they go in, the family receives them warmly and there's hugging and there's crying and, and she said, I said the same thing every time I went in there. I said, look, I know you probably don't like the police, but hey, I just want you to know when we're rapping on your door, it's not because we're wanting to harass you, it's because we care about you. And so from our family to yours, happy Thanksgiving. After this, they, they did toy drives for Christmas. They took some of these juveniles out to sushi dinner. They played basketball with them. And you know what happened to the rate of robberies in Brownsville? Plummeted. The rate of arrests of these juveniles in the JRIP program completely plummeted. Now some of these kids like Johnny Jeffries, they'd done some bad stuff, right? These juveniles, and it, it kind of seems counterintuitive to buy turkeys and toys and sushi dinners for someone behaving like that. But what does Isaiah tell us about building a community? 
Isaiah says, if you offer your food to the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the afflicted, you shall be called the restorer of streets to live in. If you remove the yoke, if you actually show the love of Christ, you can make an impact on a community for generations to come. And church, this is the kind of incredible, imaginative, loving work that the church has always championed and pioneered at her best. This is the kind of communal work that God requires of a people committed to him. But as we saw with the story of Hopwood Hall, it takes time. It's slow, painstaking, minutely detailed work. And this respect for the slow time that it takes is how Isaiah finishes the passage. It says, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Community wholeness happens slowly. And slow is the speed of the Sabbath. Right? In, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is connected to God's resting from his labor on the seventh day of creation. And so Israel is a people who rest one day a week from their labor, who rest from their toil. And we don't observe the Sabbath exactly like Israel does, but we follow the fact that Jesus reinterprets the Sabbath and he repurposes that rest to look for the needs in his community. Right? You heard in Luke chapter 13, our scripture read this morning, that Jesus scandalously heals on the Sabbath. Jesus slows down and looks and sees people in need. And he uses that slowness to restore, to heal. Because it takes time. We have to slow down. There's a couple of Princeton psychologists who did a study on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what they did was they went to Princeton Theological Seminary and they got some of the students, the seminarians, and they, they told them, you're gonna go from this building to this building and over there we want you to give this talk. Right? And on the way, there's a guy who's kind of slumped over. He's coughing, he's wheezing, he's in the path. And we get to see what they do with this guy. Now, they had some variables in this study. Some of the students were going to be delivering a talk in that building on the Good Samaritan. Some of them weren't. The other variable they put in it was time. Right? To some of the students, they said, oh, uh, you're, you're actually a couple minutes late. You better head on over there. They're expecting you. And to others, they said, uh, well, you still got a few minutes here, but why don't you go ahead and head on over? Well, they get to the end of this study, and sadly, those who were actually preparing a talk on the Good Samaritan didn't fare all that well. There were people literally going to speak on the Good Samaritan who stepped over the guy sitting in the path on the way to their talk. 
But the variable that actually mattered was time. The people who had a few extra minutes, 63% of them actually helped the man. 10% of those speaking on the Good Samaritan actually helped. We can be people who know the Bible back to front. We could be a credentialed scholar. We could write a best-selling book on the parable of the Good Samaritan, but there is no guarantee if we don't take the time that we will actually be Jesus to someone in need. If we don't slow down, if we don't stop ourselves from, as Isaiah says, pursuing our own interests, pursuing our own affairs, pursuing our own jobs, our own side hustles, If we honor the Sabbath, though, if we adopt this spiritual posture of rest, we might actually slow down long enough to see the needs of the afflicted around us. Wendell Berry says, you know, if you look at photographs from space of the earth, you can't see your neighborhood. Yeah, I can zoom in on Google Maps and I can see a really good representation of it at some point in time, but if you actually wanna know the present needs going on around you, he says if you wanna see where you are, you will have to get out of your spaceship, out of your car, off your horse, and walk over the ground. It reminds me of another theologian who has a, a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three miles an hour is apparently the speed at which an average human being walks. And this theologian is arguing that there is a speed to love. And the speed of love is slow. That we serve a God who calls us to slow down and walk with him. Calls us to slow down long enough to see the needs in our community that need restoration. To see the needs that the world overlooks. Jesus calls us to adopt the speed of the Sabbath, to adopt the speed of love. And we do this for our community, but we don't do it just to perpetuate our community. I would love if the Springs Church of Christ is around for decades and centuries on end. I would love for our existence to be perpetuated that far. But that's not why we do it. Right? Nicholas Healy says, the goal of the church then cannot be to achieve community for its own sake. Rather, the goal of all that the church does is communion with the Trinity. We want a restored community. We want restored streets to live in. We want all of that, and that is well and good, but we don't want it for our own sake. We want it because that's where we meet the living God. We want a restored community. We want to give bread to the hungry. We want to help those who are afflicted. But we don't do it because the church is just some other social program on offer. We do it because the church has not just bread to offer, but the bread of life. We do it because this is the place where God has chosen through us, feeble and broken as we are, to reveal and testify to the good news about Jesus. We do this 
not to perpetuate ourselves, but we do this because the church is oriented towards that ultimate end, towards that ultimate goal of communion with the triune God. That's why we serve because Jesus Christ has given himself for us and we give ourselves, we give our very existence for his life in order to restore a community that can last for generations. Church, may we walk with the three mile an hour God. May we walk at the speed slow enough to find the needs of our community and show them the love of Christ. Let's stand and praise God together this morning.